0: Hi there, it's Huck. I want to introduce you to something exciting we've been working on. Over the next few weeks, deep in the weeds, we'll be expanding our network with a range of new podcasts. Today, we're introducing a new show, Fish Tales, a seafood podcast with one of the world's leading authorities on seafood, John Sussman. John, you're with us now. Um, how are you?
1: G'day, Huck. How are you going, mate?
0: Good been working on this show in the background we've been talking about seafood for years I've been on your coattails Um, what's the show about?
1: Well you know you convinced me that after I guess it's probably 15 years or so of me badgering you about seafood that we should start to talk about it in the public domain and we're going to be talking to a whole host of our mates from across the industry from catchers and growers and processors and distributors and retailers and chefs and and, and I guess even some media folk about all things seafood.
0: Well, what's so special about seafood globally?
1: It is a really unique protein. I mean, still 50% of it comes from the wild catch and, you know, wild caught seafood. The fishermen are the last hunter gatherers. So they are a very special breed. And with that comes a whole host of really interesting yarns that give the back catalogue story to how seafood ends up on a plate.
0: Well, everything I know about seafood, I've learned from you. Um, why is it important to celebrate these catchers and growers?
1: Well, I think we are a category that doesn't seem to have the same level of coordination from a communications perspective as some of the terrestrial proteins. And as a result, there are plenty of mixed messages out there. And it's easy to get you know hyper-concerned about you know issues such as sustainability and affordability and usability what we want to try and do with Fishtails, the podcast, is to maybe explore some of those issues and, and really dive deep into you know, what's really going on in the seafood world.
0: Well, I'm excited to hear every episode because you tell a great story and so do so many in the seafood community across the globe. A new episode of Fishtails, a seafood podcast, will come out every Friday. So sit back, take the plunge into the deep blue with the very first episode.
2: Oysters are an emotive food, you know, pe- the people that love oysters, love them with such a passion and they give people such joy and, you know, pe- people tend to have oysters at their big occasions, big important occasion, their weddings or their special birthdays or something like that. They love to have oysters because they
1: regard them as such a special, special food. This is Fish Tales, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. The Sydney Rock Oyster is not only indigenous to Australia, but more specifically to the estuaries along the 1500 kilometres of New South Wales. As with all oysters, the Sydney Rock Oyster is influenced by the mehoir, the varying environment of the estuary or inlet in which it grows, both externally in its shell shape and colour and the flesh, both flavour, colour and texture. There is a farmer on the south coast of New South Wales for whom provenance, seasonality and husbandry are symbiotic influences that must be in complete harmony to produce a truly excellent oyster. For more than 33 years, his family have been farming oysters on a sustainable farm now powered by solar energy on Nelson Lake in Mimosa Rocks National Park in New South Wales. Gary Rodley is the most awarded oyster farmer in Australia, recognised by chefs, agricultural show judges, media and consumers as the oyster whisperer. He has made the pursuit of perfection in Sydney rock oysters his life.
2: Well, it's a special thing, John, to, to to be farming in the middle of a national park. And I think probably a lot of our success comes down to the fact that uh, we're able to do that. And, you know, that that was my sort of lucky time in life, lucky point in life, when the oyster farms at Nelson Lake came up for sale. Nelson's even... Prior to us buying them 30 odd years ago, Nelson's had sort of been a bit of a courting place for Joe and I. I think she often reminds me that the first date I ever took her on must have been a bit of a cheapskate because I took her for a bit of a picnic to Nelson's Beach <laughs> because it was just a beautiful part of the world, and 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 Nelson's Lake connects to that beach, and you know, so we've always had a love affair with the place really, and uh, so yeah, it's been quite the idyllic life and. Uh, and uh, Nelson's is only a small estuary, um, and basically we've been the only ones harvesting uh, out of the lake in all the time that we've been there, um, and that's a rare thing in the industry too to be pretty much the only the only commercial farmers in there. Um, and uh, yeah, we've we, we've got a nice relationship with the with the national parks. They're very supportive of us these days, and and I think they see our success as a a, a bit of a pat on the back for the park system that, um, you know, keeping these places in such pristine condition leads to, you know, oysters that um, have a pretty good reputation these days. We really don't have uh, any great amount of uh, freshwater systems coming in, Uh, so basically, you know, down in the far south coast here, most of our estuaries uh, are lake systems, so a um, few little creeks flowing into them, um, and you know just connected to the to the ocean uh, by the mouth of uh, at a beach, um, and that's the scenario with Nelsons. And what that means is that um, we're less vulnerable to uh, fresh water events big rain events and so on you know, such as what you know what what happened with the the floods earlier this year and you know, a lot of the guys up the north coast in those bigger big river systems had the diabolical situation of having all their gear washed out to sea well in in Nelson's a, a flood situation for us will just be akin to a big chocolate high tide for a few days um, with with um, you know less debris and, and so on coming down. We'll get, we'll get the odd tree that'll flow down the creeks and so on, but, but uh, you know, not like the torrential sort of stuff that, that can uh, dog them
1: up, up in the north coast. Although known colloquially as the Sydney rock oyster, these oysters are not confined to Sydney, growing intertidally along New South Wales coastline in bays, estuaries and lakes. With rich mineral flavours, often with vegetal and bright iodine notes, what is amazing about these oysters is the habitat they grow in the plant and marine vegetation heavily influencing the algae the oysters feed on, giving layers of flavours and complexities that are completely unique to the Australian flora and terroir. I've not eaten an oyster anywhere with its level of complexity, from the feral vegetal notes through the mineral intensity to the astringent copper-like finish. The Sydney rock has a complexity and depth that is way more interesting than the singular characteristics often displayed in the Pacific or Angazi varieties. The Sydney Rock Oyster represents a fraction of the total global production of oysters. It is not the fastest, easiest or most stable of crops to grow. But for growers like Rodley, it is without peer in quality, complexity and uniqueness.
2: We, we like to remind people that, it, that it's a very rare oyster. Uh, you know, the, in, in worldwide terms, and people, and people often say, Oh yeah, well, every RSL club's got Sydney Rock Oysters, and I say, well, in worldwide terms, It's a very rare oyster, and you know we're talking about an oyster that grows up and down the New South Wales coastline, a little bit into Queensland, a few in Albany and Western Australia, and basically nowhere else on the planet. You know, you you contrast that, say, with the uh, the Pacific oyster, and I think at last count it's growing in 66 countries around the world. So in worldwide terms it's a rare oyster, And it's a tough bugger to grow. You know, it takes a long time to grow and there's plenty of things that can go wrong along the way. Um, But the reason we love to grow the Sydney rock is that we just, particularly in my situation, where we, we run a shop front and we get to see people come and have the oysters and taste the oysters, and we see the reaction that people have to tasting this special special oyster and and uh you realize that you're growing something really really special and the, the thing for me about the sydney rock if i have to say I have to say one characteristic about the sydney rock that really sets it apart it's that fabulous sweet aftertaste that 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 lingers and lingers on your palate to, to the extent where you can you know you You go for a walk around the block after you've had your plate of oysters and come back and you can still taste the oyster.
1: For some, the concept of a sea change involves a relaxing downhill coast into retirement. Taking on an aquaculture business that has struggled for many years, with a crop that can be fickle and with no knowledge of the market could best be described as ambitious. However, through perseverance, innovation and sheer stubbornness to succeed, the Rodleys turned the sea change into a career-defining pursuit of excellence. I just had a lucky moment, really. Uh, I was uh, working in an office
2: uh, in, in Bega, and um, I just had a bit of a midlife crisis, really. Um, I was pretty young to be having a midlife crisis, but <laughs> I just knew that uh, I I didn't want to work in an office for for the rest of my life. And uh, I took some time off and... and I had, a, I had a mate that I used to play golf with who had an oyster farm. And I said, well, what about if I come out and give you a bit of a hand? And um, so out we went and, and uh, spent a day on the leases and I, I, I said to him at the, at the conclusion of it, I said, well, you know, I could see myself doing this. And uh, him, he took me for a bit of a walk. We'd, we'd been on a, a, you know, a, a pretty small little lake system, which was his, which was, uh, you know, probably 150 metres one way by 100 metres the other way. And uh, so I thought that was all the system was. And uh, anyway, it turned out that was just a little sidearm. And he took me for a bit of a walk through the mangroves. And uh, uh, after walking 50 metres through these mangrove trees, we came through and there was this vast body of water uh, that we could see, uh, a magnificent broad water, um, just all surrounded by forest, and it was a, an awe-inspiring moment. And uh, he said to me, "He said, well, the fellow that owns that has just got has just got ill. He's a mate of mine. He's just he's just got ill, and um, and uh, the family are looking to sell it.'" So that was that was a bad thing for him, of course, but that was my little lucky moment in life to be at that right place at the right time uh, during, during during this bit of a crisis and and uh, Joe was a bit worried about uh, about going into oyster farming at that time, you know moving away from a regular wage and 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 the farm really had very, very, very little infrastructure on it at that time. You know, that first year we probably sold a few thousand oysters, um, and uh, so, and we had no idea how to grow an oyster. We had no idea where we'd grow an oyster. We didn't know, had no idea who would buy the oysters. Office, and and in fact, one of one of the first, I, I kept my job for a little while, didn't let them know that I was working on weekends at the oyster farm, but, uh, and. I remember making a phone call, and we we reckon we might have had fifty dozen oysters to sell at one stage. So, someone had told me that you you ring up the processors in Melbourne, and and uh, that's how you sell oysters. So uh, I made a phone call to one of the yellow pages oyster processors in Melbourne, and and said, oh, you know, I'm 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 Gary Rodley. I'm from Nelson's Lake. i have just started oyster farming, and and they said, where, where, where are you from? Nelson's like, i never heard of it. I said, oh, well, it's down in the far, yeah, far south coast. He, no, I don't want your oysters, mate. Goodness gracious, I thought. So that, that was the, I didn't tell Joe about that phone call until many years later. Um, so that's when we thought, oh, uh, we a—we better start a, we better start a, a, a retail so I do our business. So that, at that stage, I, I just planned to be selling oysters and send, sending them off to market. Uh, I imagine that's what oyster farming was. But we started the, our own little retail in Tarthram. Now, at at the time, all I needed to do was actually say to this bloke, "Well, I'm just going to send these oysters to you, mate," and he would have been absolutely delighted with them. But I didn't know that at the time. Um, I just uh, took it as a as a as a blanket. Uh, you know, when, when, when not, we don't buy oysters from down there. Um, and, and of course the world's changed now. If, if any of the far south coast estuaries were to, to ring any of the processes in Melbourne, I'm sure they'd be delighted to take oysters from all up and down the far south coast.
1: The rock oyster demands constant attention. A good oyster farmer has an intimate relationship with their crop from the moment the baby oyster is caught. A great oyster farmer has an even more intimate knowledge of not just the oyster, but of the water in which they grow, the weather, the tides and the conditions of their estuary, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year.
2: Yeah, well, that's a real, that's a real melting pot of things, isn't it, to, what it? What it takes to grow a, a good oyster. Um, you've got to have the location, first of all. Um, so, you know, they're, they're creatures of their environment. Um, you know, they're the canaries in the coal mine, there's, you know, there's, so, and, and these days I think more and more we're recognising the characteristics of different estuaries that, that, that they give to the oysters, so, that's the first thing you need is, is, is the place and, an unpolluted place, you need to have a good flow, you need to have, um, well, have, having Sydney rock oysters is a good, is a good start. We're we're very fortunate where we are at Nelson's in that we can not only grow the oysters, but we also have the ability to catch our own spat, which makes it a truly sort of sustainable practice. Uh, and in fact, um, the last couple of years we've not only grown enough oysters for the for the half million odd that we sell every year of mature oysters, but we've been able to. Um, produce another, well over two million babies but two and a half million babies to sell off to other farmers so not only ensuring we're sustainable but helping with the sustainability of the industry uh, on a wider basis. Every oyster lease is a little bit different, every farmer's practices are a little bit different so everyone had their own ideas and no doubt those ideas were in a lot, a lot molded by the locations where they were, um, and you know, part of the husbandry uh, decisions along the way has been whether you might want to grow your oyster uh, subtidally, as an oyster does, uh, so the oyster gets to feed 24-7 basically, or whether you want to grow it as, as nature really intended in the first place, intertidally. So the oysters out of the water twice a day at low tide. So we have various um, apparatus out there, various cages and and uh, bags and floating bags and and the like that that we can use to de- in in the process of deciding uh, what method we're going to use. And and that Nelson's a little bit of a secret of our success is that. Uh, we've used a bit of a little bit of both a little bit of column a and a little bit of column b and we we often swap the oysters in between those two methods of growing Uh, and we also use a rotating cage uh, called a stanway cylinder which effectively as the oysters sitting in the cage trying to go grow as fast as it can the stanway cylinder effectively prunes the shell as the oyster tries to grow flat uh, and makes the oyster grow into a round cuppy shape. So uh, we've had great success with the Stanway cylinder over the years. It slows the oyster down a little bit but it gives you a lovely deep cuppy shaped oyster and uh, that's something that's very much sought after uh, in the restaurant world and uh, very much sought after by the oyster shuckers, of course, too, because every, everyone's a
1: uniform product. There is a contemporary practice in food production to have a crop which can be harvested year-round. A commitment to true seasonality takes a genuine confidence and level of trust. But for oyster farmers in particular, the notion of selling to market demand rather than oyster quality can be a juggling act.
2: Well, particularly in Nelsons, we, we're very seasonal. Um, now, there's a, a, a lot of places are able to sell their Sydney rocks all year round, uh, but for us, uh, our selling season starts around about November, and, and if it's a, uh, a bit of a dry year, we might be able to go through to June. If it's a particularly wet year, we'll, we might only get through to to uh, to April. Um, and the reason I think that we we don't have fat oysters over the winter time uh, is a lot to do with our location and the fact that we are in such a pristine environment, and what that effectively means is that growing them all surrounded by gum trees, is that there's no nutrient coming in off the land. So whereas if, you know if you if you might be in a more urbanised area or farmland around you, you might get a little bit of of nutrient come in that that uh, uh, makes the algae sort of accelerated in, in growth, but for us, uh, we're very very seasonal, and and really we need the the summertime winds to blow. We need the northeast winds to blow uh, to stir up the ocean currents and 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 for a bit of colour to come into the waterway. You know, we 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 always love going round in the boat, people love going around in the, in the boat out the, at the farm and seeing the water beautiful and clear and saying oh isn't it wonderful how, how lovely and clear the water is but of course to the oyster farmer that means there's no tucker in the water and uh, pretty difficult to fatten an oyster up into those situations. Once the harvest starts uh, you know we'll have all hands on deck and uh, we'll have met plenty of people out working on the waterways uh, and the grading will be sort of more or less constant, um, and uh, with us we we uh, we'll have a rumbling process too in in early October where uh, there'll be oysters that might have, have picked up an overcatch, uh, and uh, so we'll have a once the oysters come back to life we'll we'll put them through a rumbler to kill any little baby oysters on the back of them so that they so that they're Pretty much a clean oyster, uh, and uh, then we'll be grading the oysters and and uh, keeping the sizes apart from each other, and uh, um, you know just moving oysters to the best location for the age that they are, moving them in between the the two different uh, uh, strategies, either a rotating cage, or or a floating bag. Um, so yeah, plenty to do, and and halfway through November we'll we'll do all the uh, required laboratory tests to hopefully get the place uh, the all clear, so that uh, you know we measure the what algae are, are in the water and make sure there's no nasty ones there, and and uh, measure the purity of the oysters and the purity of the water, make sure everything's good to go there, and then we'll. We'll first of all start off by opening our little shop in Tarthra and, uh, and then we start shucking. And uh, uh, that can you know, be, be seven days a week for many, many months then over the season. Uh, and around about halfway through December, the oysters will continue to fatten up uh, and get to the stage where they they might be good enough to go to the restaurants. And So then I run through my restaurant list and... Uh, you know, give give the give the chefs a call, and oftentimes the, the chefs will have been pestering me a little bit, and and uh, give me a ring. How how far away are we, Gary? Don't forget me, will you? Um,
1: which is always nice. Restaurateurs and in particular chefs can be intimidating people. Whilst popular media would have you believe that every chef is hunting down growers like Rodley, often the first engagement a grower has with a restaurant can be much more humble.
2: Where the, I would say the Bermagui Country Club, the Chinese restaurant at the Bermagui Country Club. There was a delightful lady there called, Chinese lady called Edie Ning. And uh, of course it's surname NG. And uh, it's probably the first time I'd ever heard of that surname really with no, no vowels in it. So that's, that's about the, the level of culture was at at that stage. And uh, yeah, you know, they ran a beautiful little Chinese restaurant, and, and I can remember, remember putting oysters on the bus and sending them out to, to Bermagui to out to Edi Ning, and uh, she'd say fifteen dozen today, Gary, fifteen dozen, fifteen dozen tomorrow. Anyway, one, one day we missed the bus, so we had to, we had to take them out to her and deliver them to her house, and uh, this is the first time we laid eyes on each other, and. Uh, Anyway, she opened the door and I said, oh, here's your oysters, Edie. And she said, oh, you're very handsome, very handsome. I was was quite chuffed by this. I was telling Joanne, Joanne said, I think she might need new glasses, Edie, eh? But, yeah, she was a a lovely lady, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess that our ability to do that and and us being recognised... in those sort of places um, came with us having success in showing the oysters. Uh, And first of all our our initial industry organisation was the Oyster Farmers Association of New South Wales. And the Oyster Farmers Association used to have these fabulous fabulous events once a year and people still talk about them even though they haven't been on for years and years and years now. one stage they were on at uh, St George's Leagues Club and then they were on at, uh, oh, where was it? Uh, yeah, North City Bears, that's right. And um, the first thing they'd do at this dinner is they'd bring out plates of oysters and there'd be uh, a dozen oysters on a plate and there'd be three plates stacked on top of each other and uh, everybody everybody would get three dozen oysters put put in front of them, so that was a pretty good function. But anyway, in conjunction with that annual event, they'd often have a ribald sort of uh, uh, cabaret act as well too, which went over pretty good with the farmers. But in conjunction with all that, uh, there was a charismatic oyster farmer, uh, a a real gem, a bloke by the name of um, Bob Drake, and Bob was a big mover and shaker in the Oyster Farmers Association, and he used to run the competitions. And it was a good thing that he ran them because he didn't go in them as a result because they grew pretty bloody good oysters back there. And some of the best oysters I've ever tasted were some of those George's River oysters back in those days. Anyway, Bob was such a charismatic character that he'd go around to all the local suppliers and say, "Oh, you know you, you want to come to the to the dinner, here's a ticket to the dinner." Uh, how about you sponsor a prize for us? Anyway, with Joe and I, the, the, our, our finances at that stage, some of these prizes were pretty bloody good. You know, you could win a chest freezer or you could win a, a cutlery set or <laughs> all this sort of stuff. So, so we started trying pretty hard at, this, at these competitions and uh, we started to win the odd, odd prize. I think the first year we went in, we won a... We won a third prize in the unopened bistro section or something like that. we thought, geez, how about that? Our oysters are. They must be okay." Uh, Anyway, so that gave us a little bit more confidence for the next year, and it all just fed from there. And, of course, the the Oyster Farmers Association is no longer uh, uh, an organisation. We're all over New South Wales farmers now. But... uh, shortly after they folded the, um, the Royal Easter Show. The Fine Food Show as, as part of the Royal Easter Show started uh, uh, recognising uh, oysters and, and introduced a, uh, an oyster um, competition, which has turned out to be a fabulous, fabulous thing. And uh, we've been fortunate enough to go pretty good there over the years. And having that success, of course, has, has got the attention of the chefs, whether and sometimes they'll even be judges there. You know, you'll have a have some of the some of the good chefs. You might have Josh Nyland or you, or you might have Corey Costello, or those sort of characters, uh, or Neil Perry will be uh, will be part of the judging panels. Um, and uh, then you know we'd we'd often we'd often get a phone call. One of the first ones that that gave me a ring was uh, was Martin Palmer. Uh, Who used to run uh, Martin Seafoods? Martin's not with us anymore. Uh, but uh, Martin was one of the one of the judges at uh, uh, Sydney Sydney Royal, um, and uh, he 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 rang me a, a typical Martin style. The first thing he did he didn't congratulate me. He got stuck into me. How come I can't buy these oysters? And uh, uh, Steve Hodges was another one. Steve Steve at uh, um, Fish face, uh, Steve was a great, great supporter, and one he was one of the ones that, that were brave enough to recognise that um, a Sydney rock oyster didn't have to be a big oyster. One of the one of the problems along the way with the industry in those early days was the Pacifics had just come in, and Sydney rock oyster farmers were under pressure to grow an oyster as big as the Pacific. You know, the, the wholesalers would say, oh, no, we get these Pacifics now, we don't want to buy you Sydney rocks because they, they're not big, and you've got to grow them bigger, you've got to grow them bigger. And, of course, what should have happened then and there was the Sydney rock oyster farmers should have said, hang on, we're growing the best flavoured oyster in the world, uh, and that's what you're getting. Um, but... Uh, there was a few brave chefs that would say no. A, a, a good Sydney rock doesn't have to be huge. And uh, um, Steve Hodges was one of those. Uh, Khan Dannis at um, at Rockpool uh, was another one. But when, particularly when Khan went to Melbourne and 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 uh, and managed the 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 Melbourne was the head chef at Melbourne Rockpool. Uh, he could see that this little niche, a little fat, sweet Sydney rock oyster was pretty hard to surpass. Uh, And, uh, yeah, so I've got a real soft place in my heart for both those guys, because at that tumultuous time where the Pacifics were coming on the scene and everyone was going, oh, yeah, big, 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 uh, they they were clever enough to recognise that hang on, this, this, is, this is not right. This is like trying to compare a watermelon to a rock melon. This, this is just not, this is just not uh, the way to proceed here. It's, just, it's a different product. To me, I've always thought it's a shame they're both called oysters, really. It's a bit like this new, new Akoya over in Western Australia. They're not calling it an oyster. I think there's,
1: there's some, uh, some smarts in that, really. Recognition of excellence in oyster quality by peers can often be the catalyst to even greater performance for an oyster farmer. For the Rodleys, not only were their oysters recognised by other farmers, but by the broader oyster judging community and ultimately the hero chefs for whom excellence is an absolute demand. It is said that success breeds success. And for Tartha oysters, this has been absolutely true. It's been a memorable life, mate. It's been a memorable
2: life. I, uh, uh, you know, we've had um, lots of fabulous accolades along the way Um, so I guess that it's pretty hard to surpass those those uh, recognitions Um, I guess the um, when we won the President's Medal um, in conjunction with the with the Sydney Fine Food Show and the Royal Easter Show and and uh, that was regarded as the or that is regarded as the best thing you can win at the at the uh, the sydney show um, and that was a really really special one because it's it's a uh, an award that's based on a triple bottom line it's a sort of really really modern award in that it um, it doesn't just look at your product or it doesn't just look at the fact that you're Economically viable it, it, it embraces modern values of producing the thing in an environmentally sensitive way um, and you know that's what we've always tried to do, we've, we've always felt blessed to be growing these oysters out in the national park and uh, we, we always thought that oh, how are we allowed to do this grow these oysters out here this is this is amazing that we that we can do this in this beautiful beautiful place and and part of the reason we we started showing oysters in the first place apart from those beautiful prizes was was that it it at that stage we had no profile and we thought well, what's to what's to stop someone coming along here and saying oh no you, we don't want you to grow oysters in here anymore so so we were we we thought gee we we better make sure people understand what a valuable asset this is and, and and how we can feed people and we can we can make good quality produce. So that was a bit of our motivation in showing oysters in the first place. So that award, the the the, the president's medal, encompassed all those values of of your ability to to look after, um, the produce the thing in an environmentally sensitive way be a good community citizen, uh, do it in an economically sound way. Uh, And so that was a really, really special
1: one. Ever chasing excellence is clearly deeply embedded in the Rodley DNA. With intergenerational change bringing even more innovation and experimentation combined with the advent of new technology, the family business seems to be well on track to ensure ongoing excellence in their oysters is guaranteed and that their farm has a bright future.
2: Yeah, no, we've had uh, 30 odd years of doing it. One of the delights for us, for Joe and I now, is that when we first started out, our son, Sam, was uh, crawling around out in the mud out there. He was a little toddler, Uh, and now he's our farm manager. Uh, And uh, he's sort of taken the place to new levels again. He's a great innovator, a great inventor as well as a great farmer um, and uh, that's what you have to be to be a good oyster farmer really and he, he he loves the business just as much as we do so that's a nice thing because it takes you a lifetime to get to where we are it's taken a lifetime to do it so you know I'm 60 I'm odd now and um, it's sort of a bit of a shame if, if you were then to, to walk away from that. So the, the fact that Sam's coming on and he's going to take the place to, to new levels, that's very, very satisfying for us. So that's on a personal level. On a, on a broader industry level, the, I think the future looks solid as well. There's been a real revolution in growing Sydney rock oysters over, say, the last five to ten years. And that's with the advent of this new floating bag technology. As I alluded to earlier, farmers have always done different things in different places. Everyone's everyone's a little bit different in what their husbandry ideas were. But these days, this floating bag, this simple, simple technology um, where oysters grow subtidally in pairs opposite a long line, is pretty much how all the oyster farmers, at least on the far south coast, uh, are doing it. Every every oyster farmer has pretty much come to this decision. And the reason that is 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 because this tough bugger to grow, the Sydney rock oyster, which would often uh, have, have big mortalities over the wintertime, what we're finding with these floating bags is because the oyster is sitting so proud in the water... Uh, and is getting maximum food and maximum solar that we're finding we're getting phenomenal survival rates over the winter. So instead of having to you know, throw out 10, 20, 30, 40, 40% of your crop as dead shell at the, uh, as the spring starts, we're finding they've all survived over the winter. Um, the other thing we're finding is that there's more places you can use on your oyster farm. So with us, uh, with the, the Sydney Rock being such a finicky thing to grow, we found that only the, only the very best water um, <clears throat> would grow the oysters. Um, but <laughs> what we find now is with these bags, you can move them uh, to <clears throat> a lot of these locations that weren't particularly good. Um, in the old days, and suddenly you're growing fabulous, fabulous oysters there. We can we can now grow oysters, we grow beautiful oysters quite down close to the mouth on, on, on leases that were formerly only our catching leases. And suddenly we can grow oysters on our catching leases, and, you know, places that were really dormant for large chunks of the year when it wasn't catching time. <clears throat> we can now grow oysters on these places. Um... So this is a revolution that sort of dramatically, dramatically increased the profitability of oyster farming. Um, so with that in mind, you know, I'm pretty confident about how how things are looking. You know, if you have this increased productivity <clears throat> and increased survival rates, um, you know, things things are looking good. And I think that's probably... We're seeing now um, some bigger organisations coming in and and buying up family farms, Um, and uh, yeah, I'm not saying that's a bad thing uh, because generally they're considered to be pretty good corporate citizens, the big organisations that are coming in and buying farms, but I think it's probably a little bit of an indicator that there's a recognition that there is an increased profitability in the oyster farming game these days. Uh, and that's being recognised. Um, you know, whether we lose a little bit of the soul of, uh, of, of oyster farming by perhaps losing those some of those family farms, uh, only
1: time will tell on that. Passion can be a hackneyed cliche, often exploited for the purpose of self-promotion. True passion is innate. Gary Rodley oozes passion as he oozes pride in his farm, his family and his oysters. He is truly the oyster whisperer. I, I love what we do.
2: I, I love I love how happy... Uh, like, o- oysters are an emotive food, you know. Pe- people often tell you stories, oh, I, I had my first oyster. You know, they remember where they had their first oyster. Well, they wouldn't remember where they were when they had their first Wheat-Bix, would, would they, really? What their first veggie might taste. But people remember where they were. You know, oh, I was on the... On the Hawkesbury train station, you know, the bloke used to come out with a, with a bag, with a with a with a with a uh, wicker basket, and he'd have oysters in the basket, and you know, I, I get these stories constantly, uh, and uh, uh, where people had their first oysters. They're really, really emotional food, and people really. There's still still a few people out there that don't, you know, will never like oysters, but, but. Um, the people that, lo- that love oysters love them with such a passion and they give people such joy. And you know, pe- people tend to uh, have oysters at their big occasions, big important occasion, their weddings or their special birthdays or something like that. Uh, they love to have oysters because they regard them as such a special, special food. And I think us having uh, a shop front makes me realise every day, and get it reinforced to me every day, how much joy uh, we give other people by selling them lovely, fat, plump Sydney rock oysters. Uh, so if I guess I had to say a single driving force in my life, John, you know, that, that, that's what it is to, you know, as, as as farmers, you know, if a land farmer, you, you you get a patch of land, and in our case, we get a patch of water. And our jobs to, in my eyes, is to, is to do the best you can. To make the most out of that. And that's what we've tried to do. And the, the reward for us at the end of that is to see how happy people are. People are, And then it's a pretty good reward in life, isn't it? To be feeding people and to be giving people joy. Um, so, so I think that's my motivator, mate.
1: This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Seafood Podcast, or email us at fishtalespodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.